This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, so we have an awesome guest today, John Redman, uh, a real aviation lifer, is joining us on the show today. Um, having already recorded our conversation with John, Alan, what were your uh, some of your takeaways? Well, John's been in aviation forever, and he's one of those guys you, you meet rarely that has been an aircraft mechanic in the Air Force, and then had once coming out of the Air Force, he's been in aviation ever since, and so he knows the ins and outs of pretty much everything aircraft related. It's hard to find those people anymore because uh, they're just so rare, but when you do run across them, it, it's always a really good, interesting conversation. Yeah, so John uh, started his career off working on uh, in the Air Force, worked on F-16s and F-117s, so he knows those those two jets like the back of his hand and as also uh, clearly which he didn't really go into depth uh on he's worked on some of the army's sort of like secret aircraft too which is pretty cool so we'll just have to imagine uh but he <laughs> mentions that a little bit yeah. about how he was part of some kind of elite teams there um and then he's also been the uh after his time in the military uh was in the model jet engine business which is also crazy so these models um uh, with really powerful jet engines i mean I think what do you say 132,000 rpms yeah on some of these and, uh, jet turbines yeah that's the full rpm speed and 125 pounds of thrust per engine that's a ton of thrust for such a little device amazing yeah pretty intense and then he uh he and his son uh fly drones for the military now as, as contractors and do some really interesting stuff there. Uh, a lot of which he also doesn't doesn't talk about. But <laughs> he really gave us a really cool in depth uh, into, into all of his career. And so now he's uh, has a, a new company, Viper Aviation. Uh, you can visit them at viperaviationusa.com or on Facebook yeah. at Viper Aviation. And uh, he's helping people build their own experimental aircraft. So. Tell me, Alan, a little bit about the experimental aircraft industry. Well, the, the light sport aircraft industry is probably 15, maybe uh, maybe not that old, but it, it's relative, relatively new in the aviation world. And it, it allows you to build your own airplane. You have to build 51% of it. So a lot of it's uh, kits that are halfway built, roughly, and then uh, you end up building the rest yourself, and it becomes your own personal little airplane. It is very popular because it is an inexpensive way to get into aviation, have you on an airplane, kind of putter around and and visit local airports and do that kind of thing. So it's, it is a very, very, very popular thing to do today. So uh, enjoy the conversation with, uh, with John Redman. It's uh, really in-depth and covers a lot of different levels in the aviation industry. We're happy to have him. And uh, without further ado, we're going to turn to our conversation with John Redman. Hey, John, how you been? How you doing? Doing good, Dan. How are you doing? Hey, Alan. Doing well. Hey, John. So, uh, number one, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Yeah. Excited to see you yeah. again. For, for those of you listening, John's an old friend of mine. Um, we actually worked together many years ago. And then, uh, John, you got a new aircraft company. So, tell me a little bit about it. Yes, it's Viper Aviation. We custom build 
RANS S20 and S21 experimental aircraft for customers, as well as paint airplanes for people. We also have an e-commerce store that delivers carbon fiber, fiberglass, aramid materials to fix your cowlings, wheel pants, wing taps, wing tips, excuse me, any part of your composite aircraft and sell everything for that as well. So basically if I was some rich dude or semi-rich dude and I wanted to build my own aircraft, I could do it myself and then probably crash into the ground or I could call someone like you, is that right? Well, hopefully not, but the, the experimental aircraft that the, the kits out there understand they're pretty much designed to be built by the guy who can change the brakes on his car. You can follow instructions, you can build your airplane. Where a lot of people, it becomes a daunting task is in the electrical part of it and the paint. Because if you're going to drop seventy or eighty or $90,000 on an airplane, you want it to look good. So you have to be able to put the lipstick on the pig, as they call it, very well. And the other one is people sit down and tend to find very daunting situations. They, they're putting something together and they try and re-engineer it in their head. You need to understand that the manufacturer has done that, trust what he did, and just put it together as they said. All too often, people tend to go a little overboard. Yeah, so let's talk about the experimental aircraft uh, like sector in general because you know you were a you know, crew chief in the Air Force working on F-16s and F-117s. Um, how complex are these planes? And you, so you say like someone who can change their brakes can build their own aircraft, but there's no, there's no fail safe like when you're up in the air. I mean, this seems correct. like a very different, like you said, daunting task. So what, what is the, the, the climate of the experimental aircraft sector? It's, it's very large, continues to grow. Um, everybody who's flown an airplane, it's amazing. Most of them tend to start in modeling as children, whether it was building plastic models or flying radio control models or control line type models. And it's interesting how many people have the desire to once possibly build their own airplane. Uh, the experimental world is a world of about 10 million customers out there. And they sit down, they just, they want, they want to take the plunge. They say, you know, I can do this. I can change the brakes on my car. Can I really build this airplane? And of course, the man selling the kit says, absolutely. We got the best instruction manual out there. What we offer you is a builder assist program where you come and you'll spend three weeks with us and build your airplane with a team of, I'm going to say, highly trained professionals. Learn processes and programs in the military that taught me how to maintain fighters at 500 knots, 500 feet above the ground, pulling nine Gs and putting bombs on target. Never lost a pilot then. Don't intend on doing it today. It's not difficult, but it is different than the standard processes in life. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. So let's talk about your, your time in the, in, in, the, uh, in the military. So I'm working on F-16s. Like, how do you get to the point? So you, you were a crew chief. Obviously, at some point, you were like the guy who wasn't allowed to like even smell the air, airplanes. That I mean, is correct. Did, when you first get there, yeah. I, when you first get there, you're, you're pretty green. And they'll, they said, okay, go refuel that airplane. They're like, okay, you did that and didn't kill anybody. So now we're, we might let you put air in the tires. And through the years, of you, you will go through a pretty lengthy tech school, about 16 weeks, to learn how to fix the main and maintain the airplane and mainly understand what is called the tech order system that is used to repair the aircraft. It is a very lengthy system, but it's very well thought out, very process driven, and it actually makes a lot of sense. When you first get it, it just is a whole bunch of numbers on the side of a book, and you're like, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. But as you start to use it, you realize that the, the process is so thorough and so well thought out, it's amazing. 
just absolutely sets you up for success. So after you come to tech school, you go to your first duty station. And like I said, we're going to let you touch the airplane, but that just touch it. Don't do anything else. And through the next two or three years, your on-the-job training goes hard and heavy. And next thing you know, you're changing an engine. Next thing you're changing a flight control system, et cetera. And there's always, I can tell you in the fighter world, there is always something that needs to be fixed. And so there's never a lack of nothing to do. Well, how many of these little things can need to be fixed? I mean, again, all this to me as an aviation outsider seems scary. Like, wait, you have a plane that like isn't perfect? You know, you feel like they have to be all systems go at all times. But I mean, that's not the case with cars and they still run. I mean, is that still right. the case with, with airplanes? Well, the airplane, the, the airplanes, the one thing to remember with an airplane, as long as it's in motion in the air, it will fly. If the engine shuts down, you just lower the nose a little bit to maintain a level of airspeed, the airplane still flies, does not fall out of the sky. And of course, the pilot is trained in operating like that in emergencies if things like that happen. There's so much redundancy built into every system in an aircraft. If something drops offline, there routinely is another backup system right there online already that's ready to deliver whatever level of performance to ensure mission security, mission safety, aircraft safety, and air crew safety. So we were talking a little bit before about, and so you were talking about how difficult the electrical or the electrical systems are yes. on even these RANS uh, planes, which are obviously a lot simpler than an F-16 or an F-117. Um, talk about the electrical systems in an F-16 or F-117. How complex are they? They're, they're very complex. So an F-16 carries about 87 miles of wiring. Now, next that's, time you're in an air yeah, go look at an F-16. It's not a big airplane. And honestly, if you take the wires out of this stretch, 87 miles. Um, the RANS S-20, very simple airplane. It has over 1,200 feet of wire in it. You learn to troubleshoot that and you sit down and it's, don't always assume the part's bad. You need, you learn when you're troubleshooting systems like that, you learn over time through the course of doing it. It's like, okay, what else can happen? What was the last type of maintenance was done? Well, we did this last week. Ah, let's go back in there. Are there any ground lugs near there? You might have undone a wire and put one back on and maybe not tightened it enough that could cause a situation on this system. Is that possible? And you, you trace and troubleshoot like that. And, and it's just, but electrical systems and fighters are very, very complex. And a lot of uh, engineering goes into them in how they're done. I mean, the wire is designed to where it doesn't burn. In our RANS aircraft, we use the same type of wire that are used in military fighters. I won't do anything less. Probably a little bit overkill. I won't argue that. We have to charge a little bit more for, for that. But by aviation, I'm kind of an in-your-face kind of guy. We're an in-your-face kind of brand, but we are all about absolute quality and safety. Hmm. So who is your typical customer? So is it just a, is it a super wealthy person? Is it a like just a hobbyist, someone like this has been on their like dream list for forever. Um, I mean, like who, who typically comes to you guys? Uh, more of a dream list forever. So we have, uh, you know, individuals who've been very successful in life, have learned how to save and put money away. And maybe they're hitting their golden years or 50, 60 years old, did everything right, et cetera. They've got a nice little nest egg put there and they want to build an airplane. And so you can sit down and you can buy a general aviation certified like a Cessna 172 or 182 for about $150,000, dollars and it'll be eight to 10 years old. And you can get one of those for about forty dollars to $50,000 and it's going to be 40 to 45 years old. Or you can come to us and buy one of ours, help build it, enjoy that process, 
or just under $200,000. And how would you break down the costs of a, of, of a build your own aircraft? I mean, within the kit itself, um, you know, like ignoring your, your fees right. and all the other stuff, like, like the components, like just if you bought the guts of an airplane, okay. everything ready to go, what, how does that break down? Let's talk about, we'll just talk about an S20, for example, here, a Rans S20. The kit is going to run you about $37,000. That's the main airframe. Then you're going to look at $20,000 for the engine, $2,000 for the prop, and then you're going to look at approximately fifteen dollars to $18,000 for the instrument panel and a couple thousand dollars for paint. Put all that together, it's about $75,000. You build it yourself, build it in your garage at your house, assemble it at your hangar, Go fly and have a great time. <laughs> oh. That's that's really actually inexpensive because the com- competing products for that type of person are tend to be the sort of the Beach Bonanza, the one eighty twos, which new right now. I think a oh a, half a million, four, I think, or better. Yeah, they're four hundred thousand plus, right? right. So yeah, it, it, which I understand they're a little bit larger of an aircraft and they have more systems in them. That's retractable and that kind of thing. But right. if if you're not going far distances it doesn't really make that much difference anyway exactly the big thing is you need to you need to categorize and truly define your mission i'm going going to take my we're going to go see her parents in florida every other weekend so we want an airplane that's going to cruise at 150 knots or better and be able to get up in altitude so we can get there quicker etc or is it pleasure flying you know i want to go over to this airport 100 miles away for their pancake breakfast and see a buddy over there i want to go do this (laughs) i just want to fly to to be an eagle for the day and I'll tell you, the, the view from 7,000 feet is amazing. And, it, and we've all seen sunsets on the ground, but I'll tell you, a sunset from 6,500 to 7,000 feet is, is something that just you have to see it to behold yeah. it. Yeah. And so you define the mission, and it d- defines the airplane. And you can get experimental aircraft out there that'll cost upwards of 300,000 bucks, and they're going to push you down this, through the skies at 170 knots, 200 miles an hour, and great cross-country birds, etc. Yeah. just cost more money. So when you use the term experimental aircraft, why that term? Like, what does it mean? Okay, that's, that's a great question. So in the world of general aviation, we have certified aircraft. That's your Cessnas, your Beechcraft, your Pipers, etc. Now with those, you as an owner cannot do any real maintenance on it. You can change the oil, ch- check the air in the tires, etc. But that's it. Anything that's done has to be certified, has to be accomplished by a certified airframe and power plant individual. And... With that, he comes with those $70 to $130 an hour rates to repair your airplane. And then we have certified parts, parts that have to go through the concept of being certified that they're not going to fail, etc. And it's all the world of liability when it comes to that for parts manufacturers. So a certified airplane is not a cheap aircraft to maintain. An experimental aircraft that you're allowed to build yourself, and as you build it, you get what is called the DAR, which is the Airworthiness Certificate, and you become the mechanic of record on that aircraft. So if I build my airplane here, just me, and I, I get it and I fly it for five years and I send it and I sell it to you, Dan, at that point you would require an AMP mechanic to maintain it because you're not there, so you're not the mechanic of record. But I'm the mechanic of record, so when I'm maintaining my airplane, I don't have to pay those outlandish labor fees as well as certified parts. I'm not required to use certified parts because the aircraft can never be used for hire. Now here at Viper Aviation, we 
find an in-between there. For example, uh, aluminum fuel fittings that screw into like fuel tanks, etc. There's a company that are AN fittings. Now they're the same fittings that are used on certified aircraft, but when you buy that AN fitting that's certified for flight, we'll just say this 90 degree nipple is 65 to $75, or I can go down to the local hot rod or speed shop and buy it for 12. Same fitting, but it hasn't, hasn't gone through and got that certified tag. Right. So it kind of reminds me like the, uh, organic. I mean, I know you said you've been, uh, on the health, on the health up and up, right. You've been right. eating healthy and, and exercising a ton and all that stuff. And if you talk about organic food, a lot of it isn't really necessarily better than regular food. There's obviously some difference, but also now more than ever, there's companies that grow their products organically, mm-hmm. but they're not technically organic because they didn't go through the certification product or process, which can be really lengthy and expensive for a small farm, for example, to get their lettuce with the official organic stamp, even though it was grown as organically as someone that has the stamp. So it seems like it's kind of that same thing. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So now how do you know though, that the the same fitting at the local hot rod shop is really the same as the, the certified one? How do you know for sure? Especially with more complex parts, like say it's some kind of wiring or, um, like a switch or, or just something that's not just a little block of, of brass. Okay, so with wiring, there is aviation-grade wiring, and we buy it from an aviation-grade supply house. Same with, and there's bolts, nuts, washers, etc. Those, most of those we buy are certified parts because they're made in such, you know, extreme amounts that the prices are reasonable. That's not a problem. We don't play there. Mm-hmm. Um, with like the A&N fitting, if you hold two in your hand, you can't tell the difference. And no. my belief, this is just John Redmond's speculation, sometimes that could be scary, but I'm guessing that both are made from the same dyes, the same tools, the same taps, etc. And then one has to go through a certification process, so it gets another part number on it, and that's the only difference. Yeah. I have brand new guys, oh, I can get A&M fittings in China, they're only $2 a piece. Good for you. Yeah, I'll good buy them the ones that are made in America. Maybe those are fine. But I'll buy the ones made in America. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So I assume that your customers need someone like you to kind of understand the market, right? To say like this one's o- this one's okay to not go certified, and this one you definitely don't want to cheap out on. Is that right? Right. right. Yeah, that we, makes sense. We work our best at uh, you know it's if you look at our website, we we list a number of items that are included, and one of them is called a vertical power system, which we don't have any circuit breakers in our instrument panel. All of our circuit breakers are solid state, 21st century. It's mm-hmm. an electronic box that just sits down. So when the breaker pops, it's going to pop up on your screen and say, you know, hey, circuit breaker pop. You can push and reset it. But when you land, go ahead and check it out and see what's going on. And it will give you data as to, well, you know, for eight seconds, it was at eight amps instead of where it normally only pulls four amps. So it can possibly give you some more information to troubleshoot. And I've ran into some of the old gentlemen out there like, well, I want a circuit breaker run. Okay, Orville and Wilbur did it that way, and it was a great way to do it. <laughs> but it's 21st century, and Airbus and Lockheed and Boeing have showed us other ways to do it. That's the what kind of the approach we're doing at Piper Aviation, a 21st century approach. Let's kind of double back a little bit, a bit to uh, your, your military stuff again. So obviously, these are really, really expensive aircraft. They're on really important missions. Um, how much pressure does that put on a mechanic 
knowing that like these cannot crash, that these are extremely expensive, that these pilots are very high trained and I'm sure very demanding of you. Um, what is it like to be a, a military mechanic? Um, the stress is there. There's no doubt about that. But every time you see him light the burner, roll down the runway and put the gear in the well and depart, it, there's an absolute level of satisfaction knowing, you know, I sat down and I know every inch, every wire in that airplane. And I, I flipped every switch. Everything he's touching is me. And I'm not here to let him down because even though I may not like this pilot personally, I'm going to guarantee he comes home to his family. I want his daughter to see him at dinner tonight. And it's just, that's part of that. I would say the mentality of actually the military. He's one of my brothers or my sisters now. So we have women in the, in the, in the cockpit. I'm not going to let anything happen to them. I am going to kill myself to ensure they continue their mission. And that's just the military training and mindset. We're there and we're all there fighting for the same process and program, which is a red, white, and blue flag that flies outside. You do whatever you can to ensure everything for them is going to work because if it doesn't, it's a bad day. How much time did you spend just working F-16? How many years did you do that? Thirteen and a half. Wow. Yeah. At what point? At what point did you think you really knew the aircraft? How many years in did you really I would say know? Probably the at about four years, I felt very confident. Um, in a positive note, all of us with our arrogance and men and trying to be the best guy out there, probably thought it about a year. I know what the hell's going on, and, and that was not the case. You would you would get humbled very quickly. And the the great thing is is, you know, the pilots. They had pilots out there, lieutenants, you know, 250 hours. They think they know everything about flying an F-16, and they're talking to the guy who's got 1,500 hours. And they get humbled, and we all just humble each other effortlessly and regularly. And you just you work together, and it's like, no, sir, why'd you do that? Really, that well, chief? Are you sure? No. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, it was. I would say the the one that was interesting is. Uh, one of the greatest, I've had a couple of compliments in my life that I was very proud to receive. One was I got called into an office. I was four years in the military and three and a half years in the military. And I'm sitting behind a desk and there's a Lieutenant Colonel and he's asking me some very pointed, unique questions. And I'm saying like, you have a girlfriend? You're married stable? Does your wife have a boyfriend? They're like, what are you talking about? And he, and he sits down and, and I said, no, you know, he answered those and he said, well, I have a statement here from Master Sergeant Will Ison. Do you know him? Yes, sir, I do. He says, you're the best F-16 crew chief the Air Force has ever seen. Well, hot dog, I'll take that. You know, I just, I said, well, what does that have to do? They said, well, I know Sergeant Ison, and if he says this, it's true. Okay, and a number of months later, I found myself on a very unique arrowhead-shaped black airplane at a remote location in the Nevada desert working an airplane and that was all part of the kind of an interview. It was funny. And there was another time I was in the backseat of 38 and uh, my pilot who was my commander. He goes, red. I go, yes, sir. He said, you're never going to see more than six stripes in this man's air force. I said, yes, sir. He says, I don't care if you save the white house. If you marry the president's daughter, save the general's daughter. doesn't matter. You're never going to see more. Why? He says, it's your mouth. Yes, sir. Um, I tend to say what I think and don't always think before I speak. And he goes, but I will tell you this. If we were ever to put a crew chief in a glass case that said, break in case of war, you'd be that guy. I said, I'll take that, sir. It's always amazing how much training and effort goes on, on the mechanical side of airplanes and electrical side. I, I, I'm always, when you run across a good mechanic in aerospace, you know it 
pretty quick. Right. And, right. and a lot of those, a lot of those people come out of the service. Most of them do, I think. And it's just because that's what they do all day, every day. They're focused on that one thing. Right. And it's, it's like a college degree in some cases. It's kind of what it is. And everybody's enlisted, right? All you guys yes. enlisted. Yep. And you spend all that time. And how many times did you have to move when you're in the service? I think I moved a total of seven times. Wow. So every you know, two years. That's hard on a family. And yeah, it is. I really, Dan met my ex-wife, Tammy. She was a phenomenal lady, phenomenal woman, a phenomenal mother, phenomenal wife. And I mean, I never had to worry about anything at home uh, when I was at work or deployed. I knew it was 100% taken care of. And my kids were always cared for. There was no issue, no worries. So when that's not weighing on you, of course, it allows you to be even a better mechanic at work. Yeah. So. That's, that's the hard part of being in the service, right? It's just yes, being away. It is. From family. Yeah. It is. And not knowing. And then being called away at a moment's notice and you just don't have any say in it. Yeah. Right. Get your, get your gear. You're going. Yep. Wow. That, that's, that was the program. It was interesting. When Desert Shield kicked off and the whole United States Air Force went to Saudi, yeah. the F-117 guys didn't. And we're like, we're supposed to be the tip of the spear. We don't get to play in the Super Bowl too. What's going on? <laughs> just go to work. Just go to work. And a month and a half later, we finally deployed. And it just, for whatever reasons, I don't know, didn't need to know, was the people above me knew. You know, we were still going to be there, but we didn't deploy with the F-16s and the F-15s. We, we got there later on when it was time for us to be there, I guess. And so, but the initial so, reaction, all of us were like, why are we not going now? Don't worry about it. Go to work. So when you deployed to Saudi Arabia, what are the conditions like out there? They were actually not bad for us. I mean, so we were with the most unique, fragile little child plate of a fighter in the history of aviation. The airplane <laughs> has to be maintained in an air-conditioned or heated hangar. Mm. You keep it at 60 to 82 degrees. That's it. Can't be too hot, can't be too cold, will hurt the little baby. And so wow. with that, you know, the hangers were always nice. Saudi, 140 degrees outside, keep the doors closed. It was 75 inside the hangar. So that was kind of nice. And then we also, <laughs> where we were, I don't know the bill of goods that was sold to the Saudi people, but we weren't staying in tents. We, we stayed in apartments. So well, we they had always, regular beds. We had regular they, showers. Yeah, they always <laughs> yeah. say they are. The Air Force gets treated a little bit better than the Army. Oh, yeah, guys. we're the Chair Force. We need our silk <laughs> sheets and we need to have our catered meals. But with a stealth fighter, it carried such uniqueness about it, we got treated very, very well. I deployed over there with F-16s where I stayed in tents. Tents were air-conditioned, you know, and yeah. the showers were brackish water, and, but you were able to get the grime off you. Uh, food was always decent in the Air Force no matter where you went. They, they took That's also true. There. Yeah. But that's, yeah. that's why my, my father was in the air force for, uh, he enlisted also and was an electrician on aircraft for a long time. And, um, I know that's one of the things that when he came out of the service, he just had a, such a skill set uh, that made him immediately employable. Right. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that I, you know, a lot of young people ought to think about, especially the air force, because you do come out with that immediate set of skills. It's so important today to have that set of skills because it really sets you up in a career for the rest of your life. Like, look at you. Yeah, <laughs> you, exactly. you've got a long ways, right? You've got a long ways. Yeah. Just yes. yeah, yeah. So let's so let's let's run with that. Uh, so after you left the military, um, you were doing 
uh, hobby jet engines, right? You're basically right. like the, micro the, jet the, engines for JetCat USA in Van Nuys, yeah. California. And I basically managed the repair shop and sales for the United States. And it was interesting flying model airplanes and flying jets. I'm, I'm down there talking to the owner of the company once and he had sponsored me and the owner of the parent company from Germany came over and we're talking. And I look at his gentleman's name was Marcus Zipper. And I said, Marcus, why are you scheduling this, this engine to operate like this? I said, you're making a mistake. I can tell you I've trimmed a lot of 25 and 30,000 pound afterburning jet engines. And the way this is scheduled, it's not like that. I said, do you mind if I adjust it? So he opened up the engine control unit and put it into a mode where I could change some of the settings. And about 30 minutes later, I said, run that. Tell me what you think. He goes, how did you do that? Just change this, change this. It just, you know, so it ended up that at that point, um, you know, we become great friends. We're great friends to this day. And it just did that for a number of years. And then from there, I went into the hobby industry and designed model airplanes for Horizon Hobby and E-Flight. Oh, yeah. Two airplanes over five years. And mm. at that point in time, I went there. I, I told the uh, my, my vice president, I, I said, I don't know anything about electric motors. He says, I don't care. I can teach you that. What I need is your ability to make the plane fly so good the average consumer can be successful. I said, yeah. okay. And so it's interesting as, as you know, as I left there, there were two airplanes that I designed that are still in production today. One is the uh, uh, Park Zone T28. We sold over a million of those over the course of about 10 years, which was crazy. It was a very iconic model airplane chunk of foam. And another one was called the Apprentice. And more people have learned to fly on the Apprentice than anybody. And it still sells today and it still has record sales numbers. So mm. a couple of little feathers my cap feel good about it. And how big are these? I mean, these are jet. These are jet model no, no, aircraft, these right? Propeller-driven aircraft, fifty-inch wingspans. Um, you know, you can throw them in the back of an SUV and go to the park and fly and have a good time. And you know, I, I flew jets. That was my main focus through my entire military life, and and uh, my main hobby life was flying airplanes at 200, 250, 300 miles an hour. I've flown for Boeing. I've flown for NASA doing that, and we actually do that now in our counter. UAS program as well. We're getting ready to head to China Lake and fly some 280 mile an hour jets to get radar systems to determine how they, how they can defend against these if the bad guys start to use this stuff. Wow. Dan, have you seen those kind of engines? Have you seen that? Because they are really jet engines. They're not ducted fans like it used to be a long time ago. They're actually jet engines. Uh, and the they're complex little beasts, but it's it's amazing they can make in that small and it's reliable. And if you watch some of the model airplanes with those things, it's just incredible. And I can remember showing uh, some tech reps from Pratt and Whitney and General Electric at Edwards Air Force Base one day. I had my took my MiG fifteen in to show everybody, and they came down and watched it idling at thirty two thousand RPM full throttle, one hundred and thirty thousand RPM, and they just wow, yeah, one hundred and thirty thousand RPM at full throttle. Yes, wow. Okay, because that, that's the same sort of jet engine that they use, like on the the guys have a little the wings that are flying around Dubai. Have you have you seen? Yes, that? yes. In fact, those right? are jet cat engines. Are they? Okay. Yes, they are. yes, Jetman and Jetman Dubai is jet cat engines. Eves Rossi, no Eves Rossi, great guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he used to drive a seven forty seven. Now he flies around like Superman. Yeah, the the video, Dan. We got to show the video of that because uh, they're flying next to an A three eighty in Dubai that right. time. Formation. And 
in formation. And there's four, there's four jet engines on that wing, right? Right. They're 125 pounds of thrust a piece. So the guy's got 500 pounds of thrust on board that airplane or on that, that wow. wing. So it's like a two to one thrust to weight ratio. Right. Right. Holy moly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So there's a, there's plenty of thrust to do whatever yeah. they want to go do. Exactly. Uh, okay. So that obviously has implications now in the sort of the safety and security world because absolutely, absolutely, yeah, you can deliver cargo with those things pretty quickly if right. if you're not careful. So what what does that what does that look like now? I mean, I, I obviously uh, the the government and FAA and everybody is border patrol uh, is alerted to these things because a lot of times the aircraft modeling world comes up with the most unique designs long before the aerospace companies do. Right. Right. Uh, so what, what is involved in all that now? Like what, what are they trying to look at? How are you involved in some of those things? The FAA with the world of, we'll say Amazon wanting to deliver with drones and Google wanting to deliver with drones. It's yep. really truly redefining the American airspace and the national airspace. Mm. And so in the past, general aviation doesn't fly below 500 feet or populated right. areas. They're just, they're not supposed to. Right. And so from ground level to 500 feet, was never an issue and the models have always had a had a basic ruling that stay below 400 feet that gives 100 foot separation never a problem and then you're out away from the world and you go higher it's not a problem there's nothing there but right. it is really under scrutiny right now with the FAA trying to determine how to redefine the national airspace and a lot of hobbyists think the FAA is after them and out to get them and that's not the case I, I believe it's a whole new process for the FAA just as it was I'm going to say back in the 1930s when they were trying to shut down barnstorming because they saw what was going to happen with commercial air travel and package delivery, et cetera, and, and air mail. And so they're having to redo that again. And it's, it's going to be a lengthy process, and it's not going to be perfect on the first day out. It's probably going to upset some people and bend a few bumpers, but they'll all get uh, – the one thing the FAA, I believe, is very good at is finding – a general mix in the way it works out and, and becomes successful for everybody. Yeah. And Dan, one of the things that happened relatively recently is they wanted you to register. Well, you may have done this already. Still do that. Regist yeah. register, register the drone, drone. right? Absolutely. You right. Register the drone, $5 a drone. And it's, yeah. so it's interesting what happens when you crash that and it's dead. Well, you got to buy another one. So you got to spend another $5. So <laughs> yeah. the end result is you call your new one, the old one. Right. So exactly. Yeah. And such, but. Well, I actually bought this, the new one that was, they engineered it to be one gram under the weight where you had to register it. It's called the okay. Mavic, yep. the Mavic mini. I think yep. it's 299, 299 grams, maybe something like that. I have it over here somewhere. Okay, yeah. Of course I can't fly it. I'm in DC. So I, if it were to leave my apartment, it would just be shot down immediately, and then I'd be thrown in jail. But, um, you know, if I ever get outside the city limits far enough, then I can start to use it again. But, right, right. But, yeah. Okay, so speaking of uh, airspace, how do experimental aircraft fit into that whole thing? I mean, they're higher than drones. They're higher than models. They're lower than commercial. Like, how does all that work? So they, they fly in the same airspace as Cessnas, Pipers, Cherokees, and, and Beechcraft, general aviation aircraft. So you have multiple types of airspace. You have class B, class C, class D, class G airspace. Class G is pretty much anywhere that's not controlled by anything. Class B is right around an airport, et cetera. And uh, it's tiered for airliners to come in and land. And so they make sure that in those tiers, and they know exactly where you are. That ensures absolute safety for all commercial airliners. Um, and so we just operate anywhere you'd fly a Cessna 172, 182 and up to 18,000 feet 
you can talk, you can fly in an open air space without talking to anybody. Once you hit 18,000 feet, you now have to talk to the FAA. Normally their centers, uh, as they're called, their uh, trail traffic control centers, so that they know you're there. Anything, the airspace between 18 to 60,000 feet is absolutely controlled in the national airspace, no matter what. Above 60,000 feet, it's not controlled again. Normally the only people operating there is very high level military aircraft, no civilian stuff's operating there. And uh, they let the military do their own thing, so. Gotcha. So as, as part of like your, your build assist uh, with Viper, do you help people with any of that sort of stuff, like understanding what they should and shouldn't do as aircraft operators? Or I guess just tell me in general about your, about your program. So, no, you come to us, you're a pilot. We don't, we're not here to teach you how to fly or any of that. Now, we do offer possibility of what's called transition training. So where you can climb into any rental car or rental car and they're all about the same. You drive them, but you know how every car has its own little quirks. Yeah. Airplanes mm-hmm. the same way. Now the big thing with airplanes is stall speeds are different and cruise speeds are different and what called VNE never exceed speeds are all different. So that's part of your transition training to understand the requirements of your airplane to keep yourself safe and that airplane safe all the time. So we'll help you with that. But the Builder Assist program we offer is a little different than everyone else's in the industry. Other companies that do it, you have to go there for three weeks straight. And trying to dedicate three weeks of your life, we believe, is tough for most people. Yeah, for sure. Six round-trip airfare tickets from anywhere in the 48 United States to Houston, where you and a significant other, because with prices of these, normally the wife's involved and she likes to be a part of your team. So where you both fly out to us for three different weeks maybe one week this month, one week next month, one week the next month. Everybody can normally find a week in their schedule to do that. As you come out here to us, we're going to put you up in a Hilton property, probably in Hampton Inn, seems to be right next to the facility, and we're going to give you a rent a car. Food is on you, and now you will work intimately with the team, building your wings, building your fuselage, covering your airplane, whatever it is, for that point, and then you go back. We continue to build the aircraft, and during that time, our process, you will be briefed, Every Monday, as the team is briefed for the pro, what's going to happen that week, and at the end of the week, you're going to get an update of what was accomplished and what is set for next week. So you are in tune with the build the entire time. That's our builder assist, where it gives you an opportunity to not, we'll say, dedicate a month of your life, which is very difficult. Yeah, by doing little chunks instead. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, right. I think that makes sense. So, um, so what other little little things uh, do you do to support pilots who maybe aren't buying an entire aircraft for you or from you? The other one is, is our, our goal is to deliver instrument panels and wiring harnesses to anyone building an S-20 or an S-21. So that's still in its infancy now. We're not quite there yet. But the goal is if you built bought an S-21 or an S-20 kit and you're building it yourself, doing the instrument panel can be a daunting task and the harnesses as well. Like I said, we got about 1,200 feet of wire in this airplane. What if you could call Viper Aviation and pay $2,500 and all your wire harnesses just come in a box, connectors, you literally plug and play, and you wire your airplane in a day. And you just take it out, right, bolt it into your airplane, plug it in, and you're ready to go. Trying to help, help the consumer with parts of the build that can be daunting and difficult to understand. Gotcha. And then you also sell, so for you know people that already have a plane who just need to maintain it, um, do they have anything from you guys on the website or what do you guys do for them? So, uh, what we, what we have is, you know, we have lights, wingtip lights, etc. We have, uh, 
all of the avionics packages will be available, the screens if you need those, switches, etc. But more importantly, if you're pulling your airplane out of the hangar and you didn't open the doors uh, enough and you bump your wingtip and crack your fiberglass wingtip, call us. We've got fiberglass, we've got carbon fiber, we've got aramid. We also carry the world's greatest aviation-grade resin called MGS Epoxy. Now, MGS Epoxy, you can only buy, when you normally purchase it, buy a gallon. It's $250. Well, epoxy, if you don't use it all in a certain time, it does have a shelf life and it goes bad. So what we do at Viper Aviation is we have repackaged that resin to smaller quantities where you can get 3 ounces, 6 ounces, 12 ounces, or 24 ounces, depending on your application and what you need. So that way you don't have to spend $250 and then put it up in the rafters and Two years later, you go up there and it's all solidified, bad. We try and, we're trying to help bring to market for the, for the consumer the finest grade products he can get, but also in the quantities that he actually needs. Yeah, that makes sense because most people aren't buying for the whole hangar. They're just buying to, like you said, just exactly. nicks and scratches and little right. repairs. You, you crack your wingtip. If you go to some of the main aircraft houses, you can buy carbon fiber or fiberglass, but you have to buy five yards. Carbon fiber has been nicknamed black gold. I mean, our carbon fiber is $9 a foot, so that's $36 a yard. If you've got to buy five yards of that to fix a four-inch crack, that's a little frustrating. So with <laughs> us, we'll sell it by the foot. Well, um, John, this is a really interesting conversation. I mean, you've been in so many different areas uh, of aviation. I mean, from the, the military, the aircraft that you probably can't speak too much about and obviously like the the high-end hobby end the drones and now helping people build their own rans aircraft it's a it's a pretty crazy journey you've been on and you still got how long do you plan on living do you if they get cyborg technology john are you gonna bootstrap i'm going on <laughs> well i gotta ask you one more question before we go and i appreciate that it's uh it's been it's interesting to see us you know kind of go full circle yeah. as, as friends over these years but um Two pieces of tech that I, I am excited for in the future are one, self-driving cars. Yes. Um, two, I, I also just think the idea of the way they can repair people in the future. Like I, I jokingly mentioned becoming a cyborg, which we're all slowly becoming cyborgs with our phones and right. all this technology. Um, but what, what's a piece of technology that you really look forward to that you think either you know is coming or maybe you think is coming? Well, that's interesting. Never thought of that. I mean, the self-driving cars. There's got to be something in the aviation world, No. Yeah, you know, self-driving, self-flying planes. I mean, I mean we have autopilots, so yeah. You know, and uh, Airbuses that carry people. It's interesting. Those guys dial in the airport, and they dial in the altitude, and they dial in the airspeed, and the airplane lands itself. Now, pilots are still up there, and they still manage and maintain and do all that. But the aircraft has the ability. So the the, the self-flying program's already done there. A little more bold than most, I think, but, right, but, right. but yeah, it's, it's really cool to think that, I mean, you were talking, we were talking off camera about you driving out and, and picking up an aircraft. What if you could do that and not to drive yourself, you just get in the car and then it takes you there, get it, nice. come back. Yeah. You just sleep, do work the whole time. Yeah. Be amazing. That's what I'm yeah. looking forward to. Drive Mr. Daisy. Yeah. Well, yeah. John, thanks again for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And, uh, and good luck with, with Viper and everything else. All right. Appreciate it. You have a great day. All right. So if you'd like to follow up with John and his company, Viper Aviation, you can do so uh, on the web at ViperAviationUSA.com and also there on Facebook at Viper Aviation. So again, really uh, 
profound conversation. He's been around so many different, he's had hands in so many different aircraft over his years in the military, on the hobby side, on the drone side, and now helping people build their own experimental RANS aircraft. So if you, uh, if that's something you're in the market for, I mean, he's just a, a super knowledgeable, you can tell how passionate he is about not only just building aircraft, but keeping people safe in them. You know, like he said, you know, his pilots were his brothers and he wanted to make sure they came home safe. So I know if you're in the, in the market for something like that for yourself, not a, not a, a military jet aircraft, but a, your own experimental, you know, hobby aircraft, then it seems like the guy to turn to. So again, I want to thank him for being on the show and uh, we'll see you here next week on the uh, Struck Podcast. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.